Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Brad Onishi. Brad is a scholar of religion and co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. He's also the author of the recent book, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. You can get connected with Brad and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Brad Onishi with us. Uh, Brad, or Bradley, if you're probably his mom, is a scholar of religion, and you also are the host of Straight White American Jesus. At this point, there's so many adjectives that are going on in that uh, podcast name. Do you ever like screw that up and like do like Straight American White Jesus or something like that? I don't. Usually it's people who are like, hey, how, how's your show? How's like uh, straight American Jesus or how's white Jesus doing or whatever? Um, and so and then I also get worried, too, that like like I was editing one day in a public place and there's people kind of watching. And I was like, I do these. I wonder if these people think I'm a white supremacist because I'm like there's a, like a huge logo on my screen right now of just straight white American Jesus. And so, you know, <laughs> that's a thing. But yeah. Well, good thing most of us get satire. <laughs> that, you know who does not get satire is the daily wire and fox news because they always want to advertise on the show and i always have to tell them like i actually don't want to propagate white jesus i'm i'm making fun of that but you know you guys keep calling so whatever and you know and certainly babylon b doesn't understand satire either <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> i've noticed i've noticed that on twitter <laughs> All right, Brad, uh, there's a lot to you in the world, but who is Brad Onishi to Brad Onishi? Wow, that's a that's a dangerous question. I would say, um, you know, first and foremost, um, I'm a scholar of religion, so I've taught at a bunch of different schools. I, I teach currently at the University of San Francisco and uh, at heart, a writer, somebody just, you know, that's his favorite thing to do. But, you know, in terms of my story, I grew up um, in Southern California, converted at a, a a mega church when I was 14, um, was in ministry by 18, uh, married my high school sweetheart by 20, and was in full-time ministry by the time I finished my second year of college at uh, Zeus Pacific, a Christian college, and then deconstructed and stayed in the religion game per se, and just kind of processed a lot of my deconstruction through academia in, in many ways, just by, you know, studying and reading and, and, and et cetera. So, all that to say, that's kind of how I got to where I am today, where we do this show, Straight White American Jesus, that's kind of an insider show in terms of both of us being former evangelical ministers, but a, a kind of scholar show because we're both trained to kind of you know d- dissect things through that lens. And so I guess that's that. I don't know. Uh, I, I, I could say so many other things about who I think I am, some of them very positive, some of them very negative. I don't know, you know, some of them. Yeah, but I'll I'll leave it there for now, I guess. 
Good, because we don't have time for all that. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, one of no. the things that you are now is, is an author of Christian nationalism. You know, you are a scholar, so I know you've done a lot of writing before, but you wrote this incredible book that I think is one of the more p- important books of our times. It's called Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. So unfortunately, there's a next to that. But uh, what comes next? There is so much to talk about with this book. But before we really dive into the contents of the book, there's a couple of questions I, I typically ask folks. But what is something you learned about yourself as you wrote this book? Maybe there's something that you're like, wow, did not know I had that in me. Or, hey, didn't know I was about that uh, as you wrote, write a book. Because, you know, it's book writing is a lengthy process. And I'm sure you learn about yourself as you do it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, that's just a fantastic question, first of all. So, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, that really hit me was that I deconstructed in like 2005, 2006. So we're talking 15, I've been out for 15 years. I haven't been like a committed churchgoer in an evangelical way for 15 years. But as I was writing this book, it really hit me that I still think about things from, from evangelical experiences and life and ministry every day. And so, you know, people talk about trauma, people talk about a a lot of things, but I guess on a very basic level, I realized writing this book felt in some ways like an enterprise in history, like writing history. But in many ways, it was like writing myself because it's been 15 years and this stuff, it's, there's still at least one moment a day that's like bringing me back to those mm-hmm. days. And so it, it really hits you how powerful those experiences are and how traumatic they can be and overwhelming and, and so forth. So that's something I came away with very clearly after writing the book. Mm-hmm. Well, so that's what you learned about yourself. This whole entire book, right, is about white Christian nationalism. Is there anything that you learned about white Christian nationalism as you wrote the book that you didn't know before? You know, I would imagine there's a lot of research that goes into a project like this. Uh, and even though you might have gone into writing writing the book, knowing a lot about white Christian nationalism. I'm sure there's something about it that you didn't know. And you were like, wow, didn't know that, but that is important. And that's important to put down and for other, others to learn. I, I think, I, I think one of the things that hit me, and I, I think I knew this on a kind of casual level going in, but I, it really is now with me after having written the book is white Christian nationalism is, is, is very ordinary. And what I mean by that is like, you know, you can think about militias, you can think about, you know, reformed Theo bros on Twitter, you can think about, um, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you could also, and probably more importantly, should be thinking about just the like soccer mom at the, uh, on the sidelines of their kid's game, or the PTA president, or the uh, person running for school board, like, why Christian nationalism is is just in the water. It's not, it's not, and, and we shouldn't think about it that way. And I, I knew that going in, but I don't think I knew it, if, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. there's actually this, this part of the book where I talk about somebody who's, who actually won a school board seat uh, from uh, the, the school district I went to as a kid. And I talk about how she scares me, not because she's extraordinary and she's, she's going to like, uh, she's just super villain who's going to take over the world, but cause she's ordinary. Like she looks like the moms mm. that like were helping in my classroom as a kid that she looks like my mom when my mom was in her forties. And so that like the quotidian nature of white Christian nationalism, I think is really frightening. And I, I, I took that away from the book, like the book process for sure. 
Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up. I have a friend of mine who we debate on this all the time that I really have the same type of conclusion that you have, that actually the majority of white evangelicals are white Christian nationalists, whereas he thinks that this is still very much a fringe movement, powerful, but fringe movement. Uh, And while the mom that brings uh, a baked goodie to the potluck after church uh, might not necessarily have the power that someone like Stephen Wolf has, nonetheless, they are white Christian nationalists and hold to those ideals. And uh, it's very, very powerful in that way because the ordinary person holds to this just as much as someone like Stephen Wolf does, even though they might have different degrees of power. Totally agree. And I, I think Perry and Whitehead and Taking America Back for God do a great job of showing us that white Christian nationalism exists on a spectrum. And so there may be, as your friend argues, those really fringe people who are just full bore into the, the idea of white Christian nationalism or the identity. There's a lot more that are not. And that subtlety is what I think... Uh, sometimes goes unnoticed. And I think that's what you're getting at. And I think it's really important to, to, to find ways to notice it. Yeah. Before we talk about January 6th, because there's a lot to talk about there. Before we talk about all of that and the history of white Christian nationalism, how does your own personal story connect with white Christian nationalism? And why does it matter to you? You talked a little bit about growing, you know, being in the white evangelical world for a while, but I would imagine you have some sort of personal investment to talk about something like white Christian nationalism. And I'm really curious what that personal story and narrative is. Yeah, it's, thanks for asking that. It, you know, as I was writing the book, I really wanted to find a way to combine memoir with historical uh, and a, a historical account of white Christian nationalism. And it, it struck me that uh, I was a white Christian nationalist in, in that more subtle way that we just talked about. I was somebody who went to church and believed that the United States was a Christian nation. Uh, I talk about how in the book, you know, I don't know if you had see with the poll or I, um, if you went to a Christian school, you maybe if you all did, maybe didn't do it, but we, we did see with the poll every year in September. And I was that kid who like, you know, ruins everything by doing it way too extreme. So I decided I was going to do see with the poll every Friday and I would go, you know, to the, um, the poll and pray every Friday. And I would pray for God to renew the nation. And I had a friend ask me one time, like, Hey, I saw you like in front of the school. Why were you praying to the flag? Hmm. And it really hit me. Like they, they thought I was praying to the flag. And that's a pretty good summation of like being a Christian nationalist. Right. (laughs) And so I think writing this history meant connecting it to my own history in ways that I hope people will see kind of inside and what it looks like to think this way, but also I'll see the dangers and why it's just, it's really problematic. Mm Mm-hmm. So you account the history of white Christian nationalism sort of backwards in the book uh, by talking about January 6th at the beginning, and then you kind of go from there and talk about the history that led up to that moment. You know, we think of January 6th as potentially this event that happened out of a vacuum, and it certainly wasn't. And so that's why I think it's really interesting that you brought up January 6th at the beginning and then talk about what led up to an event like that? So, yeah, can you talk a little bit about how Christianity in particular was central to the January 6th insurrection? And then we'll talk about some of the history that led up to that. Yeah, I, you know, it's funny when I was, it's not funny, but it's, it's, it's striking to me that as I watched January 6th unfold on my screen, like many of us did, I, I, my first thought was like, I wonder if I would have been there if I would have stayed in. And then I started watching closer, right? You know, and and so you start wondering like what I've been there, what I've not. 
And would I have been at home praying for the people who were there as a prayer warrior? Would I have been, you know, whatever. And then you start watching more closely. And actually, Peter Manso, who, who uh, is a, a curator at the Smithsonian, started the hashtag Capital C's Religion. And, and you start sort of scrolling through those, you know, the day of January 6th, and you see the, the Deus Voltas flag, the like medieval crusader flag. You see the, you know, Trump is my president, Jesus is my savior. Uh, slogans. You see the Psalm 144 sewn onto people's, uh, you know, vests, whether it's an Oath Keeper or a Three Percenter or, or someone else. And you start to realize something that we've said for a long time on our show, which is that Christian nationalism is a great integrating force, that all those people there may not be churchgoers. They may not be members of their local Baptist church or a non-denominational mega church or whatever. But if it's, it's not about theology, it's about identity, then you can all agree that it's one nation under God and that God, you know, in some ways wants Trump to be president. Then you see that integrating mechanism just sort of like uh, at play in the footage from January 6th. You know, one of the things that I, I try to talk about in the book is that at, at every point that the rioters sort of crossed over another threshold, whether that was climbing up on the mezzanine or getting through the doors to the rotunda or getting into the Senate chamber somebody stopped and led a, a prayer. Somebody said wow. a prayer that said, we claim this space. We thank you, God, for bringing us in here. And that prayer to me was very performative, but it, and it did something very important. It, it, it told a story that said, we're not invading, we're taking back. And, the, mm. right? and so whether you're the three percenter who hasn't been to church in 20 years, whether you're the oath keeper who doesn't care about church at all, whether you are a pastor, and there was many pastors at January 6th, whether you are one of those soccer moms I just talked about, that prayer unites you, right? It's an integrating force in your, in your claiming and taking back God's house, the, the American house uh, for, uh, you know, for the right side. And so to me, that's where Christian nationalism is just, uh, it's ubiquitous and it's a, it's a kind of integrating force at January 6th in ways we can't look away from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about then what led up to this? Where do you begin Christian nationalism? Where do you kind of mark, all right, we're starting the history now of Christian nationalism. And what are the major event, events that led us up to this point of January 6th? So I, I want to be clear. I think that Christian nationalism has is, is been part of the United States as long as it's been the United States, and it's been part of it before that. So we could talk about the Puritans. We could talk about John Winthrop and the city on a hill from 1630. I started in the 1960s for a couple of reasons. One is because if you examine the kind of rhetoric coming out of uh, prominent evangelical and other conservative Christian leaders, they, they, they oftentimes point to the 1960s as the time when, quote, the country lost its way. This is when they took God out of the schools. No more Bible reading, no more prayer. This is when women entered the workforce. This is when the civil rights movement led to so much upheaval, and they'll couch it in different terms. This is when the immigration uh, reform of 1965 really changed the face of the country in many ways. This is when Stonewall happened and queer liberation really took hold in, in mainstream America. On, I mean, 1967, the Loving case, interracial marriage. I'm the child of, a, of an interracial marriage, right? So if like if you look at the rhetoric coming out of focus on the family or other places, they always point to the 1960s as this is when the country lost its way. So I wanted to sort of dig into that. And so in one sense, 
the, the modern iteration of Christian nationalism that we're talking about is a, is a counter-revolution to all of those kind of cultural changes that took place in the 60s and are still happening today. On the other hand, something else took place in the 60s that I think is really important that is a little more obscure and that the, the casual listener may be like, you know, not totally familiar with, and that is the candidacy of Barry Goldwater for president. And everyone listening now is like, mm-hmm. okay, what, what, why are we talking about this? Well, 1964, Barry Goldwater is this far-right libertarian senator who nobody thought had a chance of being the GOP nominee for president. Like person who was supposed to get it was Nelson Rockefeller, the heir to the Rockefeller fortune, a country club of Republicans. Think think George H.W. Bush, Mm. Papa Bush. That's how Rockefeller was. Well, in storms Goldwater. And Goldwater is willing, he says, to use nuclear weapons in Vietnam. Goldwater says, of course, you know, black and white people should live together, but I don't think the the, the government should be legislating that. I'll allow the 1964 Civil Rights Act. You know, everyone should just decide for themselves, which was just a great, like, you know, little dog whistle to all of the, uh, the neo-Confederate people listening to him. On and on and down the road, he was this hardline, machismo, ultra-masculine, square-jawed, baritone guy that never backed down, never apologized. And the more you dig into Goldwater, you're like, was he Trump before Trump? No. But yes, the masculinity mm. piece, the warmongering piece, the totally uninterested in policy and totally interested in slogans piece, the if you're an enemy of the United States, we will bomb the hell out of you piece, the I'm not going to use the government to create a more equal society. In fact, the best form of government is less government. All of that to say, Goldwater like looks the part in some ways as a proto-Trump. And then who's behind him? All of the suburban white folks on the West Coast, Southern California, Orange County, and all the folks in, in, in the South. And Goldwater loses a humiliating defeat, but his loss inspires the, the start of so many institutions that now have a hold on our politics. The Council for National Policy, uh, the uh, Heritage Foundation, right? All of these kinds of shadow network, alphabet soup kind of uh, organizations are started by veterans of the Goldwater campaign that were humiliated in his defeat and wanted a revenge on the, the liberals that laughed at them. Hmm. And you want to talk Paul Weyrich, you want to talk Jerry Falwell, you want to talk James Dobson. In the book, I just try to trace all of that back to this 1960s counter-revolution and the willingness to say we might have lost the battle when it came to Goldwater but we're not going to lose the war. Mm. And I think, I think they succeeded in many ways. Mm-hmm. What are some other major events then that happened through those decades? I wasn't born until the mid-1990s. So I, really, my only, the, the only time I really started to become conscious of politics was during the, the George W. Bush years and then certainly Obama. And I, I still remember the closest I saw what, what happened during the whole Trump years and certainly during the insurrection, the closest I saw happening before then was the Tea Party. That was the first time that ever kind of came into consciousness. But anyway, I'm, I would imagine even before then, there's a lot of these major movements that are happening that build up to a January 6th in- insurrection. Totally. So we could talk first. Let's talk first about the Council for National Policy. It's built in order to be a kind of counter to the organizing uh, that 
uh, many Goldwater alum, Goldwater campaign alums saw on the left. And so Paul Weirich and Richard Vigory and Morton Blackwell, they get together and they, they say, we need an organization that will kind of basically set the tone for uh, uh, Republican politics and find ways to reach the masses that are not uh, available right now. And they invent mass mailing. There, there's no internet, right? There's no, and so they find ways to reach people at their homes in micro-targeted kind of uh, voter campaigns. They set the policy for the Republican Party, and then they merge themselves with white evangelicals. They realize very quickly, if we want to find enough votes to win the war I just talked about, we need white evangelicals. So that's when they get together with Jerry Falwell and Tim LaHaye and Pat Robertson, mm. and they, they form the moral majority. And this is when abortion, out of almost thin air, becomes the number one issue for Protestants, at least at least conservative Protestants in the United States. Before then, Catholics cared about it, but Protestants really didn't. In the 1960s, something like 90% of Texas Baptists support abortion in some way. But they realize if we hone in on abortion, we can make it a matter of life and death, and we can play on the feelings of all these folks. This culminates, and I know some people listening will know this history, in the 1980 election. 1976, Jimmy Carter's elected. Mm -hmm. Who is Jimmy Carter? He's a white Southern Baptist, Bible-teaching, Bible-toting peanut farmer. He married his high school sweetheart. He was a decorated veteran of the armed forces. He was a family farmer. Could you invent in a lab a more like, you know, <laughs> prototypical person that you think the white Christian would want to vote for? He's born and raised in rural Georgia. I just want to say, too. Then you think of someone like Donald Trump and his biography. You couldn't have somebody more uncreated of a lab uh, of an evangelical candidate and yet becomes the most evangelical candidate maybe in history. Right. It's incredible. I mean, it's, and, and I know some people know this, but like when you just break it down to its parts, like so all those evangelicals I talked about, the the the, the LaHays and, and the, the Pat Robertsons and the, the followers, they do everything they can to get the Bible-teaching, Bible-toting, Georgia-born military veteran, has only had one girlfriend who's now his wife of how many years in his life president out of the White House. In order to get in, the divorced, pro-abortion, at least at some point, doesn't have a great relationship with his kids, Hollywood actor named Ronald Reagan. And there's more to that story. You know, I know people think of Ronald Reagan as the kind of father of conservative politics, but the more you dig into Reagan, he was the heir of Goldwater in many ways. And I know that sounds mm -hmm. weird because he, he was so smooth on the campaign trail. He was so affable with so many different groups. But dig into the policies, dig into the rhetoric. He was cultivated in that Goldwater kind of stream of politics in Southern California. And in my mind, Ronald Reagan's an extremist. He's a conservative extremist. Mm. And he was not a Christian. Nancy Reagan, you know, all, there's all these stories about having an astrologist follow her around in the White House and stuff. <laughs> now, I personally don't care. Like, I have no dog in that fight at this point in my life. But the point I'm trying to make is, is like, Goldwater kind of looks like Trump and the machismo, warmongering, sloganeering. And then you have this Ronald Reagan, the kind of divorced Hollywood actor who's really good in front of the camera. And you're starting to realize that Trump wasn't an accident. Mm. He was like the combination of the candidate they'd been looking for for like 60 years. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm curious about 
what you learn in, in again, like the history of white Christian nationalism around the George W. Bush years. Again, that was the first president I remember being president. I don't really, I don't really remember Clinton being president. Can you talk a little bit about what happened during those years? Because what I ended up really realizing, especially once Bush was out of office, was that the white Christian nationalist world that I was in, that my dad was in, actually ended up really turning their backs on someone like George W. Bush. Yeah. I, I remember, you know, when, when Bush is elected, I'm, I'm just graduating college, right? So I'm like, you know, generate a half a generation older than you. And I remember all this talk of like, wow, if George W. Bush is elected president, we will have a real, quote unquote, real Christian in the White House for the first time in how long? And again, that, that there's amnesia there when it comes to Jimmy Carter. And I think what happens there is the dog caught its tail and George W. Bush gets into office. He's there for two terms and he does his thing, his war on terror, his holy war, all the various policies he puts into place, the Patriot Act, et cetera. But I think when you talk about your dad, what I get there is this sense of like, yeah, but it it just didn't scratch the itch because Mm. yeah, he was a Christian, but like, I don't know. We were just looking for someone who would be, I don't know, like a little more willing to just punish our enemies and like, like really like put back in line, the people getting out of line Mm -hmm. and like forcefully order our public sphere in a way that we would be comfortable. Like, you know, George W. Bush visited mosques after nine 11 and, you know, yeah, he, he had a nice Southern accent he would put on, but he wasn't mean and he wasn't brusque and he wasn't an authoritarian during this time of the George W. Bush era. Paul Weyrich, who is the the founder of the Council for National Policy, and other religious right leaders are already taking trips to Russia. They're already looking to Russia as a kind of better model. Like, yeah, we have a Christian president, but he's not like forcefully ordering the country and doing away with our enemies like we need him to. Mm. And so to me, those George W. Bush years really formed a really key aspect of like what ends up being Donald Trump in the sense that it wasn't that we need a Christian in office. It's that we need somebody who will punish those who are against the Christians. Mm. And I actually don't even care if he's a Christian. I just want somebody who's going to bully all of our enemies. I don't want somebody who goes to church every Sunday. I want somebody who's going to bully the people that we consider others. Mm -hmm. And I think that George W. Bush years and his presidency, combined with all of those early trips to Russia and the fascination with the, the kind of authoritarianism and hierarchy of, mm-hmm. of Russia and other countries, really set a tone for what becomes, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years later, uh, 20 years later, Donald Trump's presidency. It seems as if then with the Obama presidency that they really were fueled and then began organizing in a way that maybe they hadn't really before because of the fact that you have uh, you go from the George W. Bush presidency where they became very dissatisfied to now they're extremely upset with the Obama presidency. Yeah. And that seems to be then a, just a natural progression then right into Trump. You know, one of the things that I've I've really adopted is uh, my co-host, Dan Miller, wrote a, a great book called Queer Democracy. And it's, you know, if you're if you're listening and you're a, a political theory nerd or a social theory nerd and, and you like theology and you like philosophy, this is the kind of book for you. But, you know, Dan in that book really adopts this idea that you can think of a country or nation state as a, as, a, as a kind of body, right? A social body. 
Mm. And one of the arguments I make in one of the chapters of the book is that from the 1960s forward, white Christian nationalists felt like the American body, the American national body was out of whack. And so like the older I get, the more I, you know, it happens. I wake up in the morning and like my knee hurts and I'm like, oh my God, why is my knee hurt? What did I do yesterday? Nothing. I'm just old. Okay, great. You know, my shoulder hurts, whatever. And you know, when your body's out of whack, you have to find a reason for it being out of whack after the fact. Oh, I must have done this when I was water skiing. I must have done this when I was playing basketball. Okay. I think so many white Christians in this country, when women entered the workforce, when immigrant immigration changed in the sixties, when queer liberation became visible, when the civil rights movement marched into the living rooms of so many Americans, it felt like their body was out of whack and they had to come up with reasons right? They had, and, and they couldn't just be like, you know, racist and KKK reasons. So, right. Then Obama hits the, the, the presidency and it's like our body, our national body now has a black face. There's a black man with a black family who is the head of the nation. Mm. This body is beyond aches and pains. We are, we are in a, a, a death spiral according mm. to the white Christian. So to me, the George W. Bush era sets up one component, but the idea that you would have a, a biracial man, the son of an immigrant, uh, married to a black woman with black children as your president sets them over the edge. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it's like, no, no, Mike Pence. I don't want Mike Pence. I don't want Ted Cruz. I don't want Mike Huckabee and his dad jokes. I want the guy that's going to violently and brusquely get rid of our enemies. That's what I want. No more Mr. Nice Guy. It's time to destroy anyone in our way. And so we get Donald Trump. Right. I, I still remember, you know, in, in, at the time that the Republican candidates there, you know, there were a million of them in the 2016 election at the very beginning. And Trump kind of came on a little later. And I still remember the moment that Trump came, uh, you know, announced. And, you know, he, he had that, you know, famous, like, uh, that famous uh, moment where he says something about Mexicans being rapists. And that moment, I think a lot of white Christian nationalists realized, oh, wait, wait, we don't have to settle on all these other guys. We have exactly what we want in front of us. He's talking exactly like what R- Rush Limbaugh has been talking like. Yeah. This is the guy we've been wanting for decades. Totally. I, I And again, I, you know, I think that's that's it, right? It's like at this point, We've had enough. We just endured eight years of Barack Hussein Obama in the White House. Gay marriage is legal, uh, so on and so on and so on. I don't want somebody who's going to play nice. I don't want another Bush. I don't want another legacy candidate. I don't want Marco Rubio. I don't want Ted Cruz. I want the guy who talks, as you just said it perfectly, Mason, like the guy who talks like Rush Limbaugh and the guy that'll do anything we need to to destroy our enemies. That's all like, I don't care. And this is what happened with Reagan Carter. I don't care if he identifies as a Christian like me. I just want him to bully all the people that I consider the enemies of Christians like mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. And that becomes the way you identify as a Christian. Yep. Well, that I think is a good segue then. This is a little bit of a leading question, but I believe our theology has a major role in shaping what we do in the world. And I don't think that's obviously any different for white Christian nationalists. What they believe about God, sin, salvation, you name it, shapes them 
to be white Christian nationalists. So I'm really curious what you found in your research and in the writing of the book. What was the theology that grounds white Christian nationalism? What is it that they believe about God? What is it that they, what they believe about sin? What is it that they believe about salvation? You know, all things around theology. I'm really curious what it is that they believe around these things that shapes them to be white Christian nationalists. Anyway, it's a little bit leading question because I have some of my own conclusions about then <laughs> what that might mean uh, for I love it. I what love kind it. of theology we um, shouldn't have then. But anyway. <laughs> um, you're setting me up. You're setting me up here because I know I, you're the theologian in residence. So you're going to get me. Uh, well, I guess uh, there's a couple answers. I think one of the things that I big moment for me. I'll, I'll give you a couple of big moments for me. One was the Atlanta massacre. So in Atlanta, mm. a couple of years ago, uh, a man who was raised in youth groups that are evangelical and Christian nationalists ostensibly, and in purity culture, uh, you know, goes on a rampage and kills uh, eight people, six women of Asian descent, right? And here I am an Asian American, the pandemic already heightened, you know, Asian hate and anti-Asian racism. And I think one of the things I, I dug into there was the idea of masculinity and the idea uh, that is so prevalent in so many spaces uh, when it comes to evangelicalism and, and other conservative Christian spaces is God is ultimate masculinity. Mm. And that I can't, I can't get that out of my mind because when I think back to those church days, I, I think back to these youth group dads who would yell at their wives in church and then turn around and want to pray with the group and tell everybody what a blessed day it was. I think about the ways that gender and sexuality are constructed. And I think about the ways that all of that leads me back to order. Okay. And the willingness to put things in the right order, no matter how they need to be. So that could be along gender lines and, and sexuality lines, but then it expands out. And if you asked me about what is the God of the white Christian nationalists interested in most, it's that he's interested in ordering the world the right way. Mm. And that means giving Christians the dominion and the commission to order it for him. And so you can arrive, if you take that theology to heart, at a place where you say, the the gospel is not the great commission. The gospel is not about loving one's neighbor or turning the other cheek. The gospel is about ordering the public sphere and God's creation the way that God wants it. And God wants it to be a patriarchal, you know, straight, heterosexual, family, complementary and ordered sphere. And, you know, we're going to have to find fancy ways to say this, but, you know, kind of racially, let's avoid the mixing and the interracial stuff. And, you know, let's just order everything in the right way. And then we'll feel safe. And then Mm. we'll feel like we're secure. And so I think the God of the white Christian nationalists is not a lover, is not a, is not a a welcoming father who, who, who embraces his children. It's the God who orders everything the right way, no matter what. And Mm -hmm. if that takes violence, that's okay. It might even take a person who is not a good father. It might take a person who's not faithful to his wife, right? Like that's like the, that's the insanity of white Christian nationalism is they're willing to compromise on who's a part of this, who's in power on this, even though that person in power might not actually fit all that well with the values and theology of white Christian nationalism. One of the things I learned from a great book called Compromising Positions by Leslie Doral Smith, uh, Leslie's awesome and people should read the book, is that the God who orders the public sphere, like I just talked about, is not a pure God. So even though God wants purity, 
and God mm. wants things to be ordered pure the right way. God has to be impure to, to do that. So mm. go read Hosea and God takes Israel out mm-hmm. to the field and strips her naked and beats her. Go read, you know, Isaiah, right? We have a similar story. Go read, you know, what happens in, in, in the story of Jericho. God will be impure and overstep the boundaries in order to create the boundaries. And so mm. God's man on earth might have to overstep the boundaries and be impure in order to create the purity and the boundaries that people want, to create the borders mm. and the walls that people want. So Donald Trump or any other leader who oversteps boundaries, who has multiple children and mistresses, is ultra masculine and promiscuous, that's just proof he's up for the job. That's not proof he's not fit for the job. That's proof he's up for the job. And that's scary and hard to get your head around, but it makes total sense if you think about it that way. Yeah. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So in the recent months, even, we've seen this continued rise of white Christian nationalism. What are some of these recent events and like, what would you have said about them if you were writing this book now? Right. Obviously, you probably got done finishing actually writing maybe, I don't know, a year ago or whatever. So you had to kind of put a a, a bookmark in it and had to, you know, I'm sure there's going to be shit that's going to be happening that I'm just not going to write about. But now that we are a year from whenever you stopped writing, what has happened and what would you want to say about those things if you were continuing to write this book? I think what we've seen is the, and I, there's a New York Times headline about this today. I think we've, we've entered an era where we are in a place where many on the American right, including a stalwart of Christian nationalists, are willing to say, if we have to get rid of democracy, in order to save our country, then let's do it. And, mm. you know, that's not something that I think in those Bush years you talked about, you would have ever imagined. I don't even think the Tea Party was really talking that way. I think the Tea Party was mm. like, let's be libertarians and small government and real, real uh, conservatives, not, not rhinos. We've now entered an era where people are openly willing to say, it's, it's probably not the best form of government for us to have a democracy. In fact, let's, let's, let's get rid of democracy to save the nation. And when you hear people say that they're not on the fringe, they're not uh, someone in their their mom's basement who you know who has three followers. They're people with millions and millions and millions of followers. People that have syndicated shows, people that are highly influential and well funded. I'm just not, 
well-funded. Well, of course they're well-funded. And I think, I think that's something that would have been hard to say we saw coming even in 2017, right? Five years later, I think that's where we are. The other thing I'll say, and I, you mentioned it earlier and I, it's on my mind this week. So I just want to touch on it is there's a new book out. There's a couple new books out, but there's one that's called the case for Christian nationalism. Mm-hmm. Stephen Wolf is the writer. It drops November one. And I really think we're seeing the embrace of Christian nationalism as an identity and as a kind of uh, celebrated identity. And here's the argument Wolf makes that I think was not available to your dad in the George W. Bush era that he probably wanted. Mm. The argument he makes is even in a prelapsarian world, there would have been nations. Like if Adam and Eve don't commit original sin, we're still going to end up with nations because humans are going to live in separate communities and different and, and, and come up with different ways of life. So nations are a part of God's plan, fall or no fall. Okay. Therefore, Christianity assumes that there will be nations and it completes them. So as a Christian, your, your number one priority is not the Great Commission. It's not loving your neighbor. It is institutionalizing Christianity in your country and, and bringing it in line with God's vision, which happens to be patriarchal and oftentimes, you know, uh, queer phobic and everything else. He, ought, he even says this, Mason, he says, according to Thomas, he says he's following Aquinas here. We're supposed to love those who are like us more than those who are not. Mm. So yes, God loves everybody, but you, Mason, should love people who are like you more than those who are not like you. And your nation and you should defend your freedom and autonomy from others who are not like you. This is like this close. This is like a Thomas Aquinas quote away from white ethno-nationalism. Right, right. And you're like, all right, cool. This guy self-published a fringe book. No, the book is like in the top 2000 books on Amazon right now, which, Mm -hmm. you know, Amazon has hundreds of millions of, you know, I don't know how many books are on there, but if you're in the top, if you're like book 1700 on Amazon, you're a bestseller. Like you're selling, right. you're selling hundreds of books every 24 hours. People are eating this book up. It hasn't even come out yet. That is where we are when it comes to like this movement. It's, it's, it's frightening to say the least. This is why I think you, what you brought up with this theology piece just a bit ago is really important because what they mean by Christianity is exactly what you just described in their theology, Right. It has nothing really to do about like Jesus saying to love your neighbors. Uh, it, it has nothing to do with any of that. And in fact, with all the recent data around the religiosity of new white evangelicals and how they actually don't even go to church, Christianity has nothing even to do about going to church, listening to Christian music, like all the things that we associated with evangelicalism growing up. All of that's gone to the wayside. It is simply this political order that they're trying to institute. And they're just using Christian language on top of it. But there really is no deep theology to it. And even the religiosity has gone to a wayside. That, to me, is what's like at one point. I still remember like my Christian nationalism growing up meant that we listen to Christian music. That doesn't even matter anymore. Like they're appropriating the kind of white Christian nationalism I grew up with. Oh, you're a Christian nationalist. Name a Reliant K song. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) No, I like I I didn't. I I didn't spend years only knowing VeggieTales songs and not knowing any other songs for for you to say that you are a white Christian nationalist and you don't even go to church. Well, and I think you're but I think, you know, all jokes aside and what you're hitting on is, is so important, which is. 
the best way to think about this is as a cultural identity, right? It's yes. not a theological, like there are theologians involved and they can give their theological reasons and, and there's churches involved and there's, there's religion, really but this is a cultural identity, right? It's, it's about enemies. It's about uh, sameness. It's about um, me and you, us and them here and over there. And uh, that's, that's what's uniting folks. It's not, hey, we believe the same things or we pray the same way or we sing the same worship songs, et cetera. Yeah, I, it's it's really, I just sometimes can't get my mind around it because there does seem to be that shift that happened. And I really, I, I think it is Donald Trump. When you When you start to embrace a person who is clearly not a Christian in really any way that I remember being a Christian uh, and also being a white Christian nationalist, it re- really starts to change uh, what what it actually means uh, to be a white Christian nationalist. In the book, in the, in, the, in the subtitle, you say, and what comes next? So what comes next in white Christian nationalism? As I was gesturing at earlier, I think we're going to see the rise of, the rise of, of open anti-democracy. Uh, mm. So on our show, we've been using the F word, fascism. And we can talk about fascism. We can talk about authoritarianism. We can talk about theocracy. You know, there's there's a lot of terminology. And as if we wanted to do this right, we, we'd have to sit down and define all of them. But what it boils down to for me is people willing to say, let's get rid of democracy so we can save the culture and the political order that we want. And I think that's just going to become more and more normalized. And you say, okay, where do you see that? And I say, well, I just talked about a, a very prominent book that is coming out that, that speaks that way. The New York Times today, October uh, 18th, has uh, a headline that says, Americans worry about democracy, but they're more worried about inflation. So they're willing to vote for candidates who are claiming that elections were stolen and so on because they are worried about gas prices and other things. Okay. In the book, I point to an even more extreme example. And to me, that's the American Redoubt movement, a part of the country that gets very few headlines, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, Eastern Oregon, Eastern Washington. There's a movement there that's a Christian separatist movement, and it's drawing in a a kind of slew of migrants from more liberal places. So in 2018, 80,000 people left California for Idaho. And this kind of continues, right? Uh, And there's people coming from Seattle. There's people coming from Portland. There's people coming from New York. And what they really see is Idaho and and uh, Wyoming and Montana, this American Redoubt region, as the place that's an open canvas for them to set up the kind of political order they want without much opposition. Mm. So there's a lot of preppers. There's a lot of militia types. There's a lot Mm -hmm. of survivalists. There's a lot of Ammon Bundy supporters. And there's a lot of Christian nationalists. And you, 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 know, you can think of Moscow and Doug Wilson, but you can also think of uh, many other churches. Now, why here? And I could talk about this for hours, but I'll just be really brief about it. It's because they view it as an open canvas. If you go to Texas, and many Californians and others are going to Texas for these, these same political reasons, and you try to set up the kind of state-level policies you want, right? You're going to run into Houston. And Houston is the, the fourth biggest city in the country. And there are hella black people, hella Asian people, hella Latin people in Houston. If you go to Houston, it's one of the most diverse cities in the country, right? Okay. So if you want to set up your white Christian nationalist paradise, you don't want to run into Houston. You don't right. want to run into Austin. You don't want to want, you don't want to run into Atlanta or Milwaukee or Philadelphia or Baltimore. 
what about Boise? That'll work. All right. So we ran into Boise on the state level. And guess what? Boise is like purple at, at best. Mm-hmm. And the state of Idaho is 93 to 95% white. Again, you might say, well, Texas. If it's like, have you been to Texas? Do you know how many black people are in Texas? Do you know how many Latin people are in Texas? Do you know how many Asian people are in Texas? Millions. There are not millions in Idaho or my, mm-hmm. uh, Wyoming or Montana. So what's next? This Christian separatist movement that says we're going to infiltrate county seats, city seats, state legislature seats, and we're going to have the most extreme forms of politics in the country. It's not that we're going to say, hey, take some of those books off the shelf. We don't want those here in our public library. It's going to be, why do we have a public library? Mm. That costs the city $50,000. We don't need that sell the building, sell the books, shut it down, and let's send our tax dollars to something that matters like police or something else, right? Why? It's not, hey, let's get rid of the, the, some of the books on the shelves. It's let's get rid of the shelves because I don't mm-hmm. want to pay for a library. That's one example. But to me, that's what's next. And, and if you read that, it's the very last chapter in the book. Uh, it'll scare the daylights out of you, but it's, it's probably worth it. So whole states, what you're arguing is whole states could essentially just become many white ethno states. That is, that is the attempt. And I know people probably think I'm exaggerating, but I've interviewed people in Idaho. I've, I've done the homework. This is the attempt in Idaho right now. That's mm-hmm. the attempt. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, again, if you try this in Texas, you're going to run into Beto O'Rourke. There right. is no Beto O'Rourke in Idaho just to like stand right. up for all the people. You know what I mean? So right. It's happening now. So as scary as that seems, most of the people that listen to my podcast are probably progressive Christian, you know, Christians on the left, right? They may have encountered something like this. In fact, I would imagine a lot of them have because a lot of them came out of evangelicalism. And there may be some of my listeners who didn't grow up in that world. But for those who still are, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Christian on the left. Why should they care about any of this? Maybe that it's pretty obvious with what you just said. But yeah, why why should Christians in particular care about ending and stopping and resisting this white Christian nationalism movement? So I think there's there's a couple levels. If we talk about why a Christian should care, I would say that, you know, anyone who lives, any human being should care because the kinds of movement we're talking about here are anti-democratic. They are willing to and we've seen this, they're willing to not only persecute and marginalize queer people, but to criminalize and, and, and enact violence against them. They're willing to enact violence against those who are supposedly other. And so on a human level, even if you're a white progressive living in Portland, right? Um, for you to say you don't care means you're ignoring, right? The ways that this kind of regime and this kind of political order means violence and marginalization and oppression for so many folks in the country who are not straight, white, Christian, native-born, or patriarchal. And so on any human level, it seems like we should all care. Secondly, if we care about democracy and we don't want to descend, which we very easily could very soon into something that it, it, it no longer can be truthfully called a democracy, then we have to care. And then I think if you add the Christian element here, right? If we just say, what's the specific care here? So many times on my show, we, we try to separate the kind of analysis that is uh, out, out 
group and in-group analysis. So like if I'm a scholar of religion and I'm doing out-group analysis, I don't want to, I'm not going to decide who's a real Christian and who not. If you tell me you're a Christian and I'm a scholar of religion, all right, I believe you. I just want, what does your Christianity look like historically, sociologically, Mm -hmm. politically? Let's study it all. But if I'm a Christian in the group, I care because this seems like a complete perversion of the kind of gospel that I'm trying to live. If my gospel is about justice and inclusion, if my gospel is about equity and joy, if my gospel is about love and compassion, it seems like the most sinister antithesis to that kind of gospel is the one that has taken hold of of American public life. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that has to be concerning if you call yourself a, a Christian. Yeah, I think that becomes obvious. Like we again, you talked about the theology piece. It, like to me, when you talk about their theology, it has nothing to do about Jesus or the kind of gospel that I even the most conservative evangelical gospel I grew up with. It doesn't even seem to be centered around that, and that to me is is quite concerning as a Christian. I totally agree. I mean, and and I guess you know, I I. I sometimes miss my theology days because I think it's so, I think theology is so fun and so, so wonderful, but like from a theological perspective, it, it feels like, uh, <laughs> like when I, I, you know, Mason, I don't know if you're going to read the case for Christian nationalism when it comes out, but on theological grounds, it's like this weird, you know, love child of like strange natural autonomism plus the hardest of the hardcore theo, you know, theo reformed Calvinist bros. And it results in like the most mean spirited love those like you and stick together with your clan theology that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And from a theological, I mean, I'm not a theologian anymore, but if I were, I'd want to, I hope that somebody gives us a really fine tooth comb theological, just dissection of this text. Mm-hmm. Cause we need that. Mm-hmm. Well, I might end up having to be that person. <laughs> there it is. I, I was nominating you without nominating yourself. There you go. There you go. Brad, how do you hope this book inspires and liberates readers? I, I hope it, it shows folks a couple of things. One, I used to be in this movement and I'm no longer. And I, I think that, that there's, it, it might provide hope for people who have friends or family in the movement that they are wondering if, if, if that's true of. I think two for those people who are kind of coming out of these evangelical or LDS or conservative Catholic spaces, I hope that they see that when they deconstruct their faith, it's more than just deconstructing the theology we're talking about. That the theology was already baked in, like it was a beautiful casserole of yes, conservative theology that included patriarchal approaches to gender and sexuality and marriage and purity culture and all that. But it also included insidious forms of American nationalism. It also included insidious forms of white supremacy. It also included the most, right, uh, you know, disgusting forms of xenophobia. And so when you deconstruct the theology, there's a cascade effect that you realize, oh, shit, I've got to deconstruct the nationalism and the xenophobia mm-hmm. and the very, like, everyday workmanlike white supremacy that I never noticed before, but mm-hmm. I now see everywhere. And mm-hmm. so I hope that really inspires people to do that work. And then I hope it inspires others if they're not coming out of that, um, uh, out of that space to realize we're in a war. I, and I, I, it sounds weird, but like Charles Creel, who's a, a filmmaker and a, a former kind of uh, person who worked in, in the British Parliament, you know, has a line where he says, the best, the best place you can be in in a war is when your enemy doesn't know you're in a war. And my argument is like, 
these folks that I discuss in the book have been in a war for 60 years. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people are just realizing that now. Mm -hmm. And it might be too late. And so I hope folks kind of start to see how that works and, and what we need to do to stop it. Love it. Love it. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah. So I'm at uh, Bradley Onishi on Twitter at StraightYJC for the show. And uh, uh, my my podcast, is we, we have episodes three times a week. So that's uh, Straight White American Jesus. So check us out there. Book comes out January 6th, 2023. Anywhere you get your books. Fitting. So, Fitting. Yeah. <laughs> Coincidental. Was that so really coincidental? <laughs> no, no. Oh, <laughs> totally <say>. planned. Uh, <laughs> um, and um, because if, if that if that was not coincidental, you'd have to believe in God. You'd have to become a Christian again. <laughs> that's you're right. You're right. No, that, um, but uh, yeah. So those are the best places. If I'm honest, uh, I'm on Twitter way too much. If you actually want to just get my attention real quick, hit me up on Twitter. Otherwise, I'm around. You can find me. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much, Brad. This is, this has been an enlightening conversation, you know, for both of us growing up in that world and being very immersed in that white Christian nationalism movement. It's really scary to see where we're at and it's only going to get scarier, but I'm so glad folks like yourself are talking about this and doing whatever you can for people to be aware, Hey, this is going on and there's a lot of work that we need to do in order to stop this. So thank you so much for all that you do. uh, And I'm really excited for the book to be coming out soon. No, thanks for having me, Mason. Thanks for the work you do. And and thanks for just, um, you know, providing the kind of platform and voice uh, that uh, so many of us find really essential. So appreciate you. If you'd like to connect with Brad and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.